By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of a new laundry set with the latest technology for faster, more efficient cleaning and drying so you can get back to the sounds of fall. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Final days to get up to 30% off select appliances, all finishes included, in September 14th. Offer valid August 25th through September 14th, see store or online for details. Well, hello, this is the second episode of the new season of Fascinated. If you're in Ireland, I'll be playing a solo show in the Workman's Club on Thursday, the 31st of May. Then I'll be at the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival all that weekend in Kilkenny. That's the June Bank holiday. So if you don't have plans, well, now you do. I am very excited about this episode because this is one of the people from the list. When I started this podcast, I made a list of dream guests and I have one right here. If you enjoy this free episode, please do show your support by recommending it to somebody that you think would like it. Also, if you could, I would really appreciate if you would do a post about it on social media and leave a lovely review on iTunes because that really helps other people find us. Okay, let's go. Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated. My guest, and I can't believe I'm saying this, my guest is Jan Arden. If you are listening from Ireland or the UK, you may not be aware of Jan Arden. She may not be on your radar at all. In Europe or Australia, you will probably know her better. In America, better still. And if you live in Canada, she is as recognisable as the flag. Jan Arden is many things, but for her day job, she is one of Canada's biggest selling recording artists. Normally, this is the part of the show where I try to list everything that the guest has done, but if I tried that, we'd be here for hours. On tour in Canada, she plays to huge crowds all over the country. She has just dropped her 14th album, These Are The Days, and has released upwards of 40 singles. She has been nominated for 19 Juno Awards, which is kind of like the Canadian Grammy, and she has taken home eight of them. She is a familiar face on Canadian TV and is a regular stand-in host of The Social. She has written four books and she has had songs on many movie soundtracks. And a little known fact, she wrote and sang the original theme music for Dawson's Creek. But Jan's career as a musician was a big surprise to her family. Her mother took up guitar when Jan was just a teenager and Jan herself was so intrigued by it she began to sneak into the family basement to teach herself how to play. And this led to her starting to write songs. While life as a musician didn't seem to be on the cards for Jan, a lot of her friends all assumed that she would become a comedian. She was loud and funny to mask her painful shyness and low self-esteem. That sounds familiar. She astonished her friends and parents when at her graduation she went on stage and asked the band leader if she could borrow his guitar. She played and sang a song that she had written about her friends. She described this moment in her autobiography. I stood there in the dress my mother had made me, 
with this huge electric guitar over my shoulder and looked out at a sea of dropped jaws. This was a big bang way of making her friends and family aware of her secret hobby. It gave her the confidence to perform at singer-songwriter nights. It wasn't long before she was spotted by a producer who suggested that she should make a record with a band, but she would need a thousand dollars. At the time she was broke and she was pretty certain her family didn't have that kind of money to throw away. But to her surprise, when she mentioned it to her father, he said, when do you need it? And Jan Richards recorded her very first single, Never Love a Sailor. Never love a sailor. Sailors have to go. But a stellar recording career didn't come right away. She made a living as a busker in Vancouver's gas town until she was punched in the face by a drunk. With her busking career over, she worked in a fishing boat for a short spell and then went on to join a covers band until a manager took her under his wing. In 1993, she released her first critically acclaimed album, Time for Mercy. She followed that the next year with Living Under June. The album surpassed all expectation and was a massive success. single, Insensitive, became a monster hit all over the world. Jan and her then manager are both quoted as saying that at the time the song almost became too big. They didn't know what to do. They were getting calls that it was top 10 in America, number 1 in Australia, huge in Italy, and the Jan Arden operation back then just wasn't big enough to capitalise on it all at once. What success did mean was there was huge pressure for Jan to deliver an equally successful follow-up. She approached this by doing what Jan does best, writing a collection of honest, heartfelt songs. The album Happy didn't match the crazy sales of Living Under June, but what it did do was help Jan find her tribe. After the promotion of the record, Jan went to Africa with World Vision and wrote a new album, Blood Red Cherry. She followed this with albums like Love Is The Only Soldier, Jan Arden, Uncover Me and a live album with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. She sold millions of records and toured extensively, and even performed at Live 8. In 2005, one of her biggest fans asked her to support him on his world tour. That fan was Michael Bublé. Not only did she tour with him, she co-wrote songs for his new album. He even asked his management to manage her career and relaunch her. She began to work with the legendary Bob Rock, who was famous for his work with Metallica and ACDC. That was four albums ago, and this year she released her most recent record, These Are The Days. Jan's live shows are a roller coaster. She pours her heart into her music and the stories she tells in between songs is some of the finest stand-up comedy that you'll hear. I have to tell you this very quick story about my parents. It's my most recent, I don't know, incident. To watch her is them. an amazing experience. If you look up live performances on YouTube, you will find as many funny stories and bizarre moments as you will performances of her songs. There are also moments like the arena show, where she makes space for an amazing eight-minute proposal from one of her fans to his partner. Or the show where just before a big emotional song, a phone goes off, and rather than berate the owner of the phone, the show takes a really different turn. Do you want me to get that? Is that 
everywhere. Like, don't worry about it. Who was it? Let's phone him. Actually, I'm going to post the link to that because if you like this episode, you're going to love that clip. A few years ago, Jan bought herself a large piece of land in Calgary and built herself a home. And 60 metres away, she built one for her parents. In recent years, her father had a stroke and lived with severe memory loss. Around the same time, her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So she lived in the wilderness with two people who were gradually forgetting her. Lost count of all the days I've been watching you forget. Jan's dad has since passed away. She wrote the book Feeding My Mother about the whole experience, and in typical Jan form, it's a book that will make you laugh and cry pretty much at the same time. Two days after my dad passed away, Mum was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Her condition has been a blessing in a sense. She tells me she forgets to be sad. She's still somehow very funny perhaps without knowing it. For instance, when she and I drove home from the hospital after Dad had gone, it was very quiet and eerie in the car. At one point, Mom turned to me and said very calmly, Well, I can't believe that you had him put to sleep, Jan. I just about drove off the road. When I spoke to Jan, she had finally put her mother into a memory loss care centre just six weeks before. She was still dealing with the emotions of that and also Jan's mother's dog who had been fretting since she left. We spoke in the morning. Jan had woken to a very heavy snowfall, which was unusual for late April in Calgary. But her day was going to get even more strange. We had a long, lovely chat, after which Jan received a tweet to give her a bizarre piece of news. The first pages from the autobiography of former FBI director James Comey had been released. And the first page said... Chapter 1. The Life To not think of dying is to not think of living. Jan Arden In typical Jan form, she retweeted it saying, The world has gone mad. Jan thinks the quote comes from an interview she did for a health and wellness magazine many years ago. Comey said... I was looking through trying to find a quote that captured what that chapter's about and hers just nailed it. He said, I don't know her songs that well, but I know who she is and the kind of things she sings about. All my daughters are musical, so I think they introduced her into my life. I have introduced Jan Arden to lots of people and they have always thanked me. To be honest, I feel like her music is my secret. She is absolutely incredible. I love everything she has done from her music to the books of the blog posts from her website that were published. I was really looking forward to this interview, but I had met Jan twice before, and honestly, both times were a bit of a disaster. In 2013, she headlined an open-air concert in London's Trafalgar Square, playing to 20,000 people for Canada Day. It was bizarre to watch someone who isn't that well-known in the UK play such a large open-air show. The next night, she played a small concert to superfans in Borderline in London. Afterwards, she came out to take photographs and say hello. I got a photograph with her, and if memory serves me, what I wanted to say was, I love your eponymously titled album called Jan Arden. What I actually think I said was, I love Jan Arden. 
God, I'm actually on fire just thinking about it. Then a few years later, I was at a concert in London, sitting on the aisle, and just before the show started, she literally walked by me, and I said, You're Jan Arden! And she said, Yes! And I said, I was at your show! And she said, Which show? And I said, London! And then she talked to me for about five minutes, during which I couldn't get a word out. I think I said nothing. And then she said, It was really nice to meet me, and as she was walking away, I said, I love you! My boyfriend, who was sitting beside me at the time, just looked at me and said, Jesus Christ. And I said, that was really bad, wasn't it? That went really bad. And he said, yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, you talk for a living. Anyway, thank God she didn't remember and this went a little bit better. Get ready because after this show, you're going to spend a very long time listening to her on Spotify. This is the beautiful Jan Arden. One of the, the first things I always like to do, I always like to seal my credentials as a fan. And I have to say that I do possess, uh, in my hot little hand, I have one of the 2,000 copies that were pressed of Never Love a Sailor. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, I have to say it's one of my treasured possessions. <laughs> Where did you get that? I bought it on eBay maybe uh, about maybe two years ago. Holy moly. I can't even believe that. And I honestly, I think it's a 1,000 copies. Oh, really? Wow. It just doubled in value, Jan. <laughs> yeah, you, it's just, so now it's worth two bucks. <laughs> um, so how, what's it feel like when you, when you think back to the days of uh, when you recorded your, your made your very first record? What's changed and what's the same? Well, you know, everything's changed and nothing's changed. And I know that sounds like a really ominous answer, but I think the way we record is profoundly changed so you know when I started recording we were dealing with the big clunky uh, two inch tapes and you know all these sort of physical attributes to music like the tape and the the big rooms for recording and and all the, the, the you know the specialty microphones and and I think you know now when Bob shows up we've done pre-production at my house two or three times now and he comes with his computer, you know, a pretty decent microphone, stuff that's in his computer that replaces all the outboard gear, like yeah. all the amps and the plugins. I mean, that's all sort of in the board. So, I mean, the digital world has, has leveled the playing field for everyone and it's made it accessible to everyone. And, and if you know how to use it, you can make some really, really great sounding records. Speaking about the digital world, you kind of embraced that very early on. Before social media, you were engaging that way and you were writing these incredible blog posts that, that you ended up publishing. But what was it that made you start just writing those posts? I, I don't know. I, I think maybe it was an extension of just being a songwriter I, I had always, even as a kid, um, written in diaries, and I have boxes full of these meanderings that are quite embarrassing, even if I take a glance through them once in a while, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I even wrote that down. But I think the desire to be understood and the desire to communicate my feelings and, you know, when people started responding to me, even when I think back to my space, and people writing back to me at that time and expressing, you know, similar things that were happening to them, I think I felt less isolated and less alone. And, you know, people had their own kind of ideas that they would go, oh, I've thought that too. And further to that, this is, you know, 
this is something else that I've thought about. And it always really opened up my horizons. Because it was incredible. It was such an extension of your music because your music is so, it's so heartfelt and honest. I mean, the, the first album I ever heard of yours was uh, Living Under June. And then I rapidly caught up with everything else that was available. What is it that makes you think, oh, you know what? I need to write a song about this. It's probably because I don't think about it. The one thing that's always been sort of at the base of my songwriting is that I try never to censor myself. I write things down. I very rarely change a lyric. Most of the time I'll write a song within the hour. If I if I go beyond that, I, I lose interest and I know I'm struggling with it and I usually will just walk away from it. But I um, I, I try not to think about it. I really go from a really visceral place that I'm just like, this is what I'm feeling at the moment. And a lot of times it doesn't even really rhyme on paper. Like I'll look at it and I somehow figure out a way to make it rhyme with how I'm singing it. Oh wow! I often get people writing me going, your lyrics don't really rhyme when you just read them on page. And I'm like, well, sorry, I, <laughs> sorry about that. But, but yeah, to not censor myself. And I always write with pen and paper. I, I think if I was to do it on like a typewriter or a computer, or there'd be too much of a, of a temptation to hit that delete button and backspace. And I think when I have it on, on paper, it's quite marvelous. I absolutely agree. Uh, for, with regard to writing a new show, I have to write it in a refill pad. Otherwise, it, it, it's exactly it. It's the backspace thing. You can you can work for a whole day and end up with absolutely nothing. You know, I, I know exactly what you mean. It, it just, to write it down, there's something very tactile about seeing the ink on the paper. Exactly. And I don't generally scribble things out. Like, I really will leave it. And I'm always glad that, I'm always glad of it. And, and, and it's not to say that I'm uncomfortable because when I read things back from time to time, I am uncomfortable reading what I've written down. Like, I'm like, oh, can I really say that or should? But I, I, I'm glad, I'm glad of it as time goes by that I've just left it alone. Uh, on your new album, one of the songs that this process seems to resonate with is Not Your Little Girl. You can say what you want, but I'm not your little girl. Stand in my path, but you're never gonna change anything that I do. No, you're never gonna change me. I started scribbling down words, and as I'm kind of mumbling, Bob thrust a microphone into my hand. I was sitting in the console room on the on this old black leather couch, and he said, "Just sing, sing what you're doing." And I said, "Oh my God, I don't even know what I'm doing." Like I, he goes, "That's okay. We can change it later. Just." It's really cool, like I, I want to get the vibe. And so it was very kind of just whatever came into my mind and I was singing what I scribbled down on this piece of paper and that, what I sung at that moment is what is on my record. That's incredible. It really, and we tried to re-record it, like we sort of lived with it for a few weeks and he's like, you can try and, you know, re-sing it. But he says, I don't think you're going to capture that. And I didn't. I couldn't kind of get the rhythm or the beat or I just couldn't seem to capture that. So that moment is what's on the record. I mean, obviously we put backup vocals on there and, and there was certainly some more instrumentation that went on there, some strings and guitars. But the vocal pass itself is exactly how... It was written and recorded in the same moment, and that is a first for me. I am an army. I don't do 
when you record a new album, does that become your new favorite? I think so. It's funny. I, I don't even listen to this record now. I've kind of, I, I move on from it. I'm not a person that sits and lis listens to my old records. I wish I was. Back in the day when I drank a little bit, I don't drink anymore, but I would, I would, you know, have six drinks and put my records on and then just be super depressed. Like, oh, I should have changed that. And I should have done this differently. <laughs> I, I don't do that anymore. Thank God. Oh, thank God. Yeah. I do like to move forward. Like I'm already writing music for, you know, another record. I think Bob and I will record again in 2019. And I haven't oh, wow. even toured this record. I'm doing summer festivals and, um, I'm actually out all fall, September, October, November, I'll be out with this new record. Wow. I'm actually going to be in the UK. I'll be there in May. I'm flying over on the 12th. I'm there for about 10 days. And you'll, ha you'll get a good laugh at this because I'm doing color commentary for the royal wedding for a national television station here. Oh my God, I did commentary for the royal wedding here for the last wedding, Prince William, Oh my it? God, yeah. and I know nothing about... I don't know anything about it. And they're like, it's that's fine. Horrific. You know, we'll have you I got we'll so many complaints. <laughs> God. It's awful. Uh, I know this is asking a lot, but is there any chance you will, uh, you'll maybe bring a guitar and do a show somewhere? I wish I was. I don't, you know, that it's worth putting that out there. And now that you've kind of piqued my, my imagination again, I should probably should have a conversation with my manager just to see if there's a little place that maybe a guitar player and I could sit down and play some songs. It's certainly worth pursuing. Like I said, I'm going to be there for 10 days. Well, just to push you on that a little bit, uh, I was at your show in the Borderline in London uh, maybe two years ago when you played at Canada Day in Trafalgar Square. And that, oh, right. that little show in the Borderline the, the next night was, I think it is been my favorite gig ever. And Michael Bublé hopping oh up as God. well, that, that didn't hurt. Everyone here feels the same thing. We all love Jenna. <laughs> how, can you, how can you not love Jenna? I feel embarrassed that I touched your hand and I'm clammy and I'm gonna think about it. <laughs> that was so bizarre, but he's like, I'm gonna come to your show. And I'm like, okay. And I never dreamed that he'd get, I mean, we've completely fucking screwed up home. I know. And <laughs> Probably. Each one of mine or two. I did it wrong, right? I'm fine, baby. What a band! <laughs> Allison's like, I kind of know it, but I kind of don't know it. Um, but it's so, it was so great. It was, I loved that show. And I was so pleased that, you know, 150 head showed up and came to see us. I was really touched. Everybody in that audience knew every single word and it was, oh, it was just such a brilliant night. And it was before, it was bef before the release of Everything Almost, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. If there was another one of them going, I think we would, uh, Jan fans all, all around the UK would be absolutely thrilled. Well, I, I should, I'm, I don't know if I've just been so lazy or what I've been, but I really, I do want to get over there a lot more in the next four or five years. And um, I'd love to get back to Australia a few times and play down there. But the UK has always been so amazing to me. And I've had such, you know, loyal fans and people that really have embraced the music and, you know, had a, obviously a little bit of a little bit of radio success over there with Insensitive and, and the Living Under June album. So I'm really grateful for that.
Well, if the UK won't have you, you're also more than welcome in Ireland. I love Ireland. I, I've, I've, I've been there twice. I've never played there. But I, my friends and I rented um, like a little castle. Oh, wow. And it was insane. This was about 10 or 11 years ago. And I mean, we literally woke up to roosters crowing and <laughs> had pub meals every night and just walked until our shoes practically fell off our feet. But yeah, just a beautiful country. It's, it's curious that you're, you were saying that maybe some more stuff in the UK. I was watching a, an old interview with you today and in the interview you were 37 and you said that you felt you had maybe three or four more records in you and that within the next 10 years you'd, you'd probably will be hanging up your touring boots. Now that was, that was eight, 18 <laughs> years ago. You have such a huge body of work. Are you still ambitious? I think I'm more ambitious now than I was 15 years ago. I don't know what's happened. Maybe it's my newfound sobriety. I'm not sure, but I feel so much better. I've lost like over 50 pounds. I don't know how many stones that is. I just have a real renewed sense of purpose. Maybe it's the stuff that I've gone through with my, my parents and kind of watching their lives wrap themselves up and my dad passing away and my mom now with Alzheimer's. She. Alzheimer's has been almost a gift in many ways to me. And it has really taught me about being in a moment and not living in the future because it just doesn't exist. With that has just come this new idea about God, you know, I might have another 25 years on the planet where I can really feel well and embrace new things and try new things. And it's just been really lovely. I mean, I. I'm having an opportunity. I've been working with a production company, a television production company for the last few years. You'd get a kick out of this because I'm actually shooting six episodes of a sitcom that I've been working on in August here in Canada. Wow. And uh, yeah, we've gotten the opportunity and gotten some money and we're going to go and and it's kind of loosely based on my life and, and having a parent with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so, yeah, I'm really, it's really, really cool. I'm, I'm so excited. I could completely screw it up, but no. I'm really excited about the opportunity. I, I think that's incredible because the, you wrote Feeding My Mother, the, the book about your, your mother's struggle with memory loss. Um, you write so brilliantly and so, uh, so comedically about something that is, has clearly been so devastating for you. Thank you so much for that. I, I'm very proud of it. And honestly, I have been so gobsmacked by the response to that book. I thought, oh gosh, you know, maybe we'll sell four or 5,000 copies and, and uh, you know, help a few people along the way. And, and we've almost sold 100,000 copies of the book. Wow. I know, and I just sit and I, I'm reminded at what a catastrophic disease this is for millions of people all over the world. For people that would know your live shows, stories about your mom and stories about your dad are almost as, I suppose, necessary in a John Arden show as, you know, for you to play good mother or insensitive. How has it been, I suppose, in the past couple of years with your father passing away and your mother's illness, how has it been uh, with that on stage? I think people are, you know, it's like the elephant in the room. It's interesting that you bring that up because People are so worried about me, you know, kind of breaking down during Good Mother or, 
you know, because they've been with me on this journey, but I think, you know, they're still so relieved that I'm having lots of laughs about it, that I'm talking about, you know, the crazy stuff that my mom does and says, and that humor will always be at the core of what I do. It doesn't matter how hard and fast life comes swinging at me, I'm going to stand there and laugh because really that's who my mother was for sure. She found humor in everything. Like it was never too early to make a joke about a bad situation. <laughs> She's like, you've just got to laugh. What can you do? And I think my mom, you know, I always heard her voice in my head guiding me through this journey because when I put her into um, like a memory care center six weeks ago, I was devastated and I was ashamed and I felt guilty and I thought, my God, what am I doing? But I knew that it was time. But I could hear my mom saying, you should have done this two years ago. I don't know why you kept me home, for God's sakes. I can just hear her. <laughs> Obviously, that's like, that's a great service to do her, to, to have the strength to actually say that th this is something that has to happen now. Oh, for sure. And she taught me that I could do anything. Like, I would never have gone into music. My mom was so brilliant. Um, I'll just give you a perfect example of who my mom is and was. I was, Insensitive was at the height of its popularity. I was in the United States with my American record company and, 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 and I had been going all over the world on this crazy song. And anyway, the president of my record company offered me a, a lift home from a big event that I was at. And, and I was like, great. And when I got in the car, he was smoking a cigarette. He was a very big man, like 275 pounds. And, and he looked over at me and he said, you know what, Jan? you're 30 pounds away from superstardom in this country. And I was so taken aback. So I, when I got to my hotel, I raced up, I called my mother and she listened to my story and she said, well, why didn't you tell him you didn't want to gain any more weight? <laughs> and I just, at that moment, felt like I had someone on my side for the rest of time. And I thought, screw you. You know, that's incredible. I knew the guy meant, but right, do you know what I mean? That's absolutely brilliant. That is that at the heart of who my mom is. What I used to love was her commentary that you would make about your songs. She would say things like, you see what happens when you write something with a bit of pep? <laughs> oh my God. I remember playing her good mother for the first time. You know, I played it before it came out and, you know, I wrote you guys a song and, and she kind of was tapping her foot and she, all she ever said about good mother was that, well, it's got a really good beat. <laughs> That was it. I was, it was never about the content of the lyrics or, you know, that's so lovely and we love you too, or it was nothing. It's so perfect. And my though. dad said to me one day in his imperfect dad fashion, he goes, hey, don't forget I'm in that goddamn song too, he said to me. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Didn't you write a song about your dad later? He's been in a few of my songs kind of abstractly. Uh, all the days there's a song on um from my free record called all the days that my mom and dad are in there about you know kind of abstractly but he sneaks in there hanging by a thread is 
certainly about my older brother who's been in jail for many, many years, but I think my dad sneaks in there as well. Um, it's very difficult to grow up with an alcoholic because when you're a kid, having someone who's unpredictable is really difficult to navigate. Yeah. But having yeah. said that, had he not been a big drinker, I don't think I would have ever been a songwriter because I went into the basement at, at my mom and dad's house to stay away from him when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And that's when I learned how to play guitar. And isn't it true that you didn't tell anyone you were playing guitar and that you got up at your graduation to play a song and your mom and dad just were completely astonished that you could even play the guitar? They could not believe it. And I had kept it a secret. I was 18 years old when I graduated from high school. And they both sat there like they were looking at an alien child. My mom said, I didn't even know you liked music. You know, I just, and by that time, by the time I was 18, I'd probably written two or 300 terrible songs. God. But the wheels had started to spin and I was obsessed with it. I still to this day don't read music. I have no clue what anything is, uh, what it looks like on paper. I do everything by ear. But I'm, I, I wouldn't have, I talk about that a lot. Had my dad not been an alcoholic, I would never have been a musician or a singer. I have to ask about the comedy in your work as well, because the routines in your show are, I mean, are they routines or are they off the cuff? I mean, it is brilliant stand-up comedy. <laughs> well, coming from you, that means a lot. I never, ever know what I'm going to do. Um, my band has the patience of Job because they stand there and wait for me to finish my diatribes, whatever they are, but I don't know why it's so important to me. I think I was always very apologetic about the the content of my music, that it was, you know, of a personal nature and, you know, oh. and, and I felt like I needed to balance that. And it just sort of, it sort of just stayed with it. And I think from people going from these high highs of laughing to being kind of hit in the middle of the sternum with the music. I love, I love the polarity of it. I, I find it fascinating. Because at your gig in Borderline, I couldn't believe how honestly I was laughing and how honestly you were almost moved to tears by, by your music. And it's an experience that I haven't had anywhere else. Your shows, they, they truly are completely bipolar. <laughs> it is, and it's a rush for me. And I don't know what I like better of having people have a good laugh or, or, or just moving them where they can attach something that's happened in their lives to one of my songs and that it helps them somehow. All I know is that when I see, you know, when I do any size of show, whether it's a borderline or whether it's, you know, four or 5,000 people here in Canada, whenever I see them leave, they feel, they look lighter to me. They look like that they've just been lifted up a little bit. And I'm, I've just loved that so very much. I mean, I know what music has meant to me in my life. I, um, you know, I love seeing live music and I, I always just leave feeling inspired and like I can keep going forward. And I think music's magic and so is laughing. And you've experienced that, you know, time and time again oh, in your yeah. career of of how you've healed people with a laugh. Yeah, and sometimes you forget, I think, as well, that when people go out to something, they they don't just go for entertainment value. Sometimes they go 
because they need they need to get out of themselves uh, which I think as somebody that works in that area you you do tend to forget that you just take a gig for gig but you do sometimes forget that people will go uh, because there's something going on and they need to just get out of their head for a night absolutely it's it's an honor to have people come out and you know never mind that spend a few bucks to come and see you because all of all of us have busy lives and our time is important and we're asking people to come out for a couple of hours yeah and and put up with us yeah <laughs> put up with us in the inner workings of our minds yes <laughs> Sometimes uh, my go-to thing when there's a Canadian in the audience, if I if I talk to them, I I always say, "Oh, Jan Arden." <laughs> and <laughs> the Irish audience is usually they they won't know you, but the Canadians, the response is always, "Oh my God, I love her." Completely irrespective of age. Do you have? Is there a typical Jan Arden fan? Gosh, you know it's a good question. Whenever I see my audience, I'm like, "Who?" I always say to them, "Who the hell are you people?" And they always laugh <laughs> because I'll see you know 15 year old girls like six of them lined up chewing gum on their cell phones. And then, you know, three rows back, I'll see people that have been married for 40 years or a group of women that are all 45 years old, pre-menstrual. They've been out <laughs> drinking white wine. They've got, you know, t-shirts on that they've made and, and they're just talking to me the whole night and causing a commotion. And it, it really is a testament to... Canadian people, and I think sort of the length of my career, um, you know, television has really garnered me new fans as well. I've done a lot of these stupid antics with a guy named Rick Mercer here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, ridden bulls and gone <laughs> fucking hanging off the sides of buildings and gone. I do all these crazy things with him. He just retired um, the show this year, but for 15 years I've been doing things with him. And I get asked about that more than I get asked about music. Like if I'm in a store somewhere, they're like, oh, are you going to do something else with Rick Mercer? But that has garnered me a whole completely different group of people that come and see me sing now because of him. That's amazing. I, I, I mean, I do always say that you, I, I think Jan Arden exists in the intersection between Alanis Morissette and Bette Midler. <laughs> That's that's classic. Um, I uh, I did actually meet you at a Bette Midler concert in London, believe it or not. <laughs> I was sitting on the aisle and you walked by and I thought, oh my God, that's Jan Arden. Oh my God, that was such a good show. and It was incredible. I cried from the minute she started till afterwards. And I've met her a few times just because we, we have a mutual friend and he introduced me to her. She was so nice. And... I was so relieved that she was really funny and warm and, you know, just, just, she's just one of us. I don't know how else to say it. Oh, wow. She's a good person and she's still so feisty. I thought she sang so well that night. Yeah, she sounded amazing. She sounded absolutely brilliant. Seven, 70. So there's hope for me. Oh my God, there is hope. And will you continue like Bette Miller? Will you go to 70? I'm going to keep going until I can't. Fantastic. You know, I think I'll die on my feet. If I'm still singing well, and I really don't see why I won't be, I think I'm singing better now than I was 20 years ago. Um, One thing about your albums is every album has been better than the next. It's better than the previous. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's almost like the like the definitive 
artistic career in that the collections of songs just keep getting better. I, I can't compliment you enough and it, it, without sounding thoroughly patronising. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but everything almost was my, my previous favourite until until this new one. And also, they always sound so different. It's like you, there's, there's like a reinvention going on or something. It's really amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful to hear you say that. I, I don't think it's done intentionally. I always feel like I'm being very much me, but working with Bob this last seven or eight years has been the most gratifying experience. Um, he, he is the quirkiest, most eccentric man. Like he'll take a break from the studio. He'll say, you know, I'm just going to go for a little walk. And Bob is, I think he's 62, you know, so he's a young man. He's not, but he's very young at heart. He's still got his long blonde hair and, and uh, he'll, but he'll go for a walk and he'll come back 45 minutes later with a Japanese fashion magazine, uh, (laughs) two beeswax candles and a new pair of boots. And I'd be like, where the fuck did you go? (laughs) He'd, he'd end up at some store talking to somebody and. He just is very eccentric and he's quite mad. Like he's quite, you know, uh, I I never know. He always has me doing a lot of things at once. And maybe that's good for me um, because I never know what he's asking me to do. Just sing this part. I'm like, well, what am I singing it to? He goes, well, don't worry about that. I'll I'll show you all. And he just pieces everything together like this crazy puzzle. Like whenever I listen to his mixes, I'm just like, is that what we've done? So I, I know we're going to do another record and I'd like to do some more writing with him because I wrote this whole, with the exception of two songs, I wrote this whole last record with Bob. He doesn't do melody or lyrics or anything like that. He has nothing to do with that. But he gives me these grooves and he gives me chord progressions. And I'm just like, I just sit in a corner and scribble out ideas as quickly as I can. I noticed a few years ago, I think it was around the time of Free, everything just seemed to step up. What is it that makes you take a leap like that? That where, where you, what is it that, that makes an artist just take that two steps up? I think the songs always lead me in that direction. I mean, some of my biggest influences people wouldn't believe, but they were ABBA and KISS. Oh, I really got ABBA from um, You Love Me Back. Yes, absolutely. That's so ABBA. And I said that to Bob. I said, I just would love this to be kind of like ABBA. And he goes, that's possible. But I, you know, but I loved Kiss in Boston. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, I had an older brother as much as he was such a screw up. I really admired him because he smoked and he drank beer and he was just, he quit school. And, you know, I'm kind of looking at him going, you're so cool. I mean, meanwhile, he's completely losing himself and spiraling into, you know, where his life ended up is tragic. But yeah. He dealt with my dad's addiction much differently, but of course I wanted to listen to what he was listening to and, 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 you know, be like him. I mean, thank God I didn't turn out that way, but I was influenced by so many things that he loved to listen to, but that the song always leads you. And Bob has really taught me that whenever I write something, he's opened my mind up to the possibilities of what the production could be like that, you know, that we could do, we can do anything you want, Jan. And I think he's given me a lot of, you know, bravery. Plus, I don't worry about radio anymore because my days of being on the radio ended, you know, 10 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'll am i be on recurrent and I still hear myself on the radio a lot. 
but it's not on top 40. Like it's not on pop radio. And is, is that freeing for you? Very much so. Like on this record, we just, we threw all that out the window. We just made a record that, you know, we both loved. I mean, in uh, all the little things, there's a guitar outro that is two minutes and 20 seconds long. Yeah. It's Keith Scott. You know, Bob looked at me, he said, should we just let him go? And I said, let's just let him go. There, there are lovely little moments like that on your records, like they're on um, Hard To Be Alive. Oh, crazy I love that song. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy. Oh, no problem. But I was joking around, so I wasn't sure how we were going to end the song. So he had them doing this thing, and so I started this note, and I just thought, oh my God, when are we going to end it? And I just kept going, 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 and Bob looked at me, and he goes, that's the ending of the song. And I'm like, oh my God, don't make me do that every night. <laughs> But it really suited it. It was almost like this wail into the abyss about, it became kind of this battle cry. I love Hard To Be Alive. I know it's such an unusual song. It's brilliant. Uh, it's kind of like this old, I don't know, it, it felt very European to me. It felt Irish to me. It was this waltz. Yes, actually. You know, I, I it just reminded me of, of Kirsty McCall, who I loved so much. I was devastated when she passed away. Yeah, it was, oh, it was awful. I just, I think about her to this day and I, I play her music a lot in my house. And she was really part of that song for me. One of the uh, the albums before I, I let you go to your to your dogs now, <laughs> but one of the things I had to uh, say before we go is um, your album that where you were your you, where you were live with the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. What was it like to re rework all of your songs? I know this seems kind of trite, but it was absolutely magical. When you stand on a stage with forty five musicians playing brass and string instruments and the oboes and a freaking harp. It, it, it moves, it vibrates under your feet. And it's a palpable, you really have an understanding of how tactile music is. It is a moving force. It, it has substance and girth and width and, and, and you forget that sometimes when you're recording. But it is, it's these waves that literally move through your body. And I think that's what makes it so magic i think that's why it moves us because it physically moves us it makes your bones rattle so when you work with a symphony you are reminded of that for two hours and when you leave the stage and when the music stops you feel its absence and i never in my life want to be without music and without it in my life it's part of my every day i probably listen to music four or five hours a day. It's in my house. I put it on when I get up in the morning. And who who would be your go-to album? Gosh, I've been listening to so much stuff lately. Brandy Carlisle and Sia. Um, I, I, there's a band called Daughter that I love so very much. Um, but just the older stuff like Streisand and Shirley Bassey, Ella Fitzgerald, the Mills Brothers. Oh, wow. 
Dean Martin. But um, yeah, Shirley ba- P- Petula Clark has been in my house the last couple of weeks, big time. Oh, I just yeah. I was listening to Downtown yesterday, and I actually played it three times in a row because it's such I was a great like, song. I can't even believe that just happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I actually the way I I, I heard of you was um, a friend of mine uh, was the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest in 1993, <laughs> which is a random fact. Wow. Yeah, but she uh, she was making uh, her second album and her producer gave her a copy of Living Under June saying, you know, listen to this. This stuff is, this is incredible. And she ended up demoing a couple of the songs to see how they would work. Um, and I, when I heard her versions of them, I was just absolutely blown away. And that, that was how I found you. Um, just through someone else's interpretations of your oh songs. Oh my god! But yeah, so those when I heard your versions, they 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 then obviously they're the originals, but they sounded so different. But to hear them all reimagined again uh, with that big orchestra, it's just it, it, that album is incredible. And I didn't think that uh, my producer Ed Cherney would leave the talking in. Oh, it's so good. And it did. It may. And I get asked about that all the time. Like, what were people laughing at when you were talking about insensitive and? And I always explain I was looking up at the ceiling of the of the building in the Orpheum, um, it's which is this beautiful theater, and it looked like the Poseidon Adventure, you know. And I, the like the boat tipping over in the in the ballroom, and everyone falling through the glass, and I, that's what they were laughing at. I'm like, can you imagine? grateful when people find me you know I I think I'm naive sometimes to you know to realize how far out the music has gone you know I'm certainly not a household name in many countries at all but I'm always grateful to find that my music has made its way around the world and and I mean you you've made my day even chatting with me because I'm glad it's found you it really has and there were a lot of Irish people at that borderline gig as well and um, there was a, a group of girls that I got talking to. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you have really, your music really has reached out and touched <laughs> people all around the world. Well, it's it's a magical thing. It really is. And I'm going to keep doing it, you know, as, as long as I'm singing well. And I'm sure you'll uh, hear about the sitcom when we get it going. And I'll definitely chat you again. I know how to find you. Yes. And I'll keep you posted. But, yeah, I'm still... I'm, I've written a whole bunch of, of cool new songs that I really like that are very different once again. I've been writing a lot on piano, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's it's just, I, I feel good. I feel very creative, and I think my mother really has spurned that. It's just like, get out there, grab life by the balls, and just, you know, just just get on the horse and ride. And my mom used to always tell me to ride into the sunrise, not the sunset. Oh, and gosh. I always loved that. Yeah, that's incredible. And she was, she's was she been so instrumental all through your career. Even the fact that you were running away with her guitar into the basement to learn it and nobody oh. learned. Um, I think your career is such a testament to someone who was obviously an incredible person. Um, she was something else. And she still is. You know, she's still, 
she's still in there inspiring me and saying really great things but the one thing that will always stick with me as long as I live I say mom do you think you'll forget me someday and she goes well my mind probably will but my heart won't yeah, it is. And those things do give me a lot of hope. I, I think all mom's memories are stored up there in the cloud somewhere. And and I think she will be reunited with all that. It's it, Our bodies frustrate us because they they can't, our souls are so big. They can't contain it. They can only carry us around so long. There's limitations physically, but there's no limitations for our consciousness and our souls and I really believe that. I do too actually. My my neighbor uh just passed away a couple of weeks ago. One of her friends said well two of her friends said two different things that really blew my mind. One of them was that she was she was too good a soul for her to just be gone that she's everywhere now. And the other one said um she just had to get out of that sick body. Yeah. And there were two things that I've never thought that way before and it it just really blew my mind. Yeah, I I, I believe that to be true. I, I often picture my mom standing beside herself, her, her soul, and she's just waiting, just waiting. And that's, she can't really remember because she's a split apart now. Her, she's almost got a, a foot on either side of the fence. Yeah. And that's why she can't remember because she's already left a little bit. And um, I feel like that's, an integral part of this disease is that she just cannot be inside there anymore. It can't hold her. But her body is still well enough that it's still going. So she's the caretaker of her body right now. And she's just standing guard until until it finally breathes its last sigh. But I won't be sad. I'll be really filled with joy. I'm I'm very prepared. I always was so worried about mom dying and I'm very ready for it now. And I'll it'll be a joyous day it really will yeah she gave you yeah she gave you so much oh and she'll be off and running and i know i'll see her again i know i will i think groups of souls travel together absolutely yeah i really believe that it's been so lovely to talk to you thank you so much stay in touch and we'll talk soon That was the incredible Jan Arden. She has a new album out called These Are The Days and her most recent book, Feeding My Mother, is also available on Audible. All of her albums and books are available online and they're all well worth checking out. I've stayed in touch with Jan and I will be sure to keep you posted on all the stuff she's doing on this side of the world. You can follow Jan on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and I can't recommend this enough. She writes absolutely fantastic blogs on her Facebook page and she is the queen of the Insta story. You can follow me on Twitter but I'm mainly on Instagram these days. I'm at Garode Farrelly on both. I'm new to Instagram so give me a follow there. Though I'll warn you, it's mainly photographs of my cat. Some of my former guests will be appearing in Ireland soon. Ben Adams will be in Flashdance at the Board Gash Energy Theatre and Michelle Gale will be there from the 25th of May in Son of a Preacher Man. Those productions are touring, so you can check out local listings. Also, former guest Marcella Detroit will be playing 10 London dates in July at Boysdale of Canary Wharf and the fantastic Shelley Wright is crowdfunding two new EPs on Pledge Music. I absolutely love the episode I did with Shelley Wright. I think it's one of my favourites. So if you haven't heard it, check that out. In my next episode, I will be looking at the aftermath of winning a TV talent show and I'll be chatting to one of the winners. Believe me, if you've ever watched X Factor, you don't want to miss this one. It'll be out soon. Thanks for listening. And the words I had problems with this week are career and Insta story. Manage her career. 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 And her Insta.
and her insta story and her insta stories are second to none <laughs> and her insta st- and she is the queen of the insta story this podcast is part of the headstuff podcast network did you know 77% of women who wear bladder weakness products experience intimate skin irritation? As if having incontinence wasn't stressful enough. But Tenna Intimate Pads have been gynecologist tested and do not cause skin irritation. Gentle on my intimate skin. I need to try Tenna Intimate Pads. Visit tenasample.com for your free sample. Kind to skin protects like Tenna.